Hello and welcome to Back to Life. I'm Millie and I'm so happy that you can join me today. You're in for a real treat. We have another very, very special episode with a very, very special person. Back to Life, if you've not listened before, is a podcast all about healing and creativity within the world of electronic music. The mission really is to destigmatize, demystify, and celebrate the recovery or healing process and look at how that intersects with creativity and music. So, we've had some really incredible guests. I feel very, very blessed and very lucky to have had these conversations so far. And today is no different. Today, my guest is an absolute icon, a complete legend. Uh, she's been DJing for 27 years. She's also been in bands. Uh, she produces, she's a vocalist. My guest today is Lauren Flax. Lauren is a Detroit native and longtime Brooklyn resident who has been performing internationally for many, many years um, in a variety of different projects. She is known predominantly as a DJ and producer now, I guess, but she's also been in the band Creep. Uh, she, yeah, she's been involved in loads of different scenes. Uh, she's basically just been dedicated to music her whole life. She is a really, really incredible producer uh, and DJ. And she has such an incredible story that I'm so honoured to share with you today. I do want to give a trigger warning because we do talk um, about childhood abuse. That was a part of Lauren's story and that is referenced in the podcast. So if that feels very raw for you, then maybe go back and listen to something else from the Back to Life catalogue. But yeah, so you can imagine this is a pretty hard hitting and incredibly inspiring um, and incredibly beautiful uh, conversation. I have never cried in a podcast uh, before, but I cried recording this one. Um, it touched me very deeply. Um, so yeah. Without much further ado, I want to keep the intro a bit short today because I just want to give more time to this conversation. So, so let's get straight into it. Here's Lauren Flax. You've just celebrated your six-year sober birthday. Yeah. And we mm -hmm. were actually going to record on that day, but tell me what you did instead. <laughs> what did I do? Uh, my friend did a shot of tequila for me. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, they wanted to do it. And I was like, yeah, go for it. And yeah, I didn't do much. I'm not doing much, honestly, this winter because it's just, it's cold. I'm tired. I honestly just, I think I just hung out at home. Did you reflect on where you were sort of six years previous? I mean, it's so funny because each year when it comes up, it's like, um, I realize it's coming up to my anniversary closer and closer to the date as opposed to like looking forward to it. It's just kind of like become just a part of life in such a normal way now that like, the reminder is really beautiful because I know it's so cliche saying like it, it just gets better, but it's incredible. Like walking the earth a different way and getting your footing and like building this tool belt to deal with things that you used to use with alcohol. It's just every year I'm just more just reminded of like how much has changed even before I quit drinking, like in the last 10 years of just focusing on healing. And the drinking, quitting drinking was kind of a, just a, a part of that journey about four years in. So I just keep thinking kind of farther back to like 2013 and just how much has changed in my life. And even just the last year, it almost feels like the, the um, recognition I'm kind of um, getting musically lately. To me, it feels more based on not necessarily what I've done more as an artist, but what I've done more personally in my own healing and what I can handle as a human being within the music world. Mm. So now, like, I believe with, in the creep days, end of the aughts, 2010, 2012, you know, in that era, you know, we also got a lot of recognition for my band in that time, and I was not ready for it. We were not emotionally stable or healthy enough to handle it. So thinking back... 10 years and the 10 years I spent, like things just fell apart with my band, right? Mm. Because of reasons that weren't, that had nothing to do with music or us. It was the shady part of the business, right? So that itself in itself was really difficult to accept. So, but coming through the other side of that was a really good moment for me because that's when I was like, oh, it's time to start over in music and kind of readjust to how I go about life. And that kind of 
made me refocus just all of my energy on not having a goal in mind except for what would be best for me in my healing and my journey. So writing music that I love, that makes me move, that makes me celebrate, that makes me happy, that makes me cry. I mean, this week, last week I wrote a song and I think uh, in the studio for four hours, I cried almost the whole time writing it. It, it just, I'm mm-hmm. just reminded like how powerful music is for healing. Mm. And I'm just like so grateful. So when I shifted my focus, you know, from before to wanting to be successful, instead shifted my focus to wanting to heal and enjoy the journey and write music. And then everything else kind of lined up that gives you the success that you want and the stability that you want. But you don't have to say like, I want success. Like, no, actually, I want to like enjoy this journey. And, you know, getting into that moment where I quit drinking in 2017, that was another kind of big, obviously a big shift because I, you know, emotionally it was very difficult for me and the outside world. But when it came to quitting drinking and then going to the studio, my focus was just through the roof. And I just was so much more easily in the music as I was writing it. So it seemed like a big shift in itself. So like I said, it's like, had I not taken these steps to get my own life together, I don't think that in 2023, I would be sitting here do like feeling like convincing myself I'm not in survival mode anymore. That's the hardest thing, I think. Mm. But yeah. Uh, I think that, thank you. That's exactly what I needed to hear today. I, you know, just hearing you speaking about prioritizing the process, basically, and then, you know, mm-hmm. all the other stuff kind of coming. And, but it was interesting because I was actually going to ask you about receiving the Underground Hero Award recently by DJ Mag. And that was just one of those like, Yes. Like, yeah, I was so happy to see you get that. And as they said, you know, because you are you are a real hero in that, you know, in the activism and um, the work you do with Last Night at DJ Saved My Life. But you seem genuinely shocked by it. You seem genuinely surprised. It is still difficult for me to sit in that moment. Like, I think because when I started over in like 2000, 2014, I just decided like that's when I made that decision so anytime anything really positive came into my life I tried to not focus on it so much I'd be like great thank you I want to continue to keep my head down work learn and grow just the same way I try to do it even so when bad things come in but that's harder to just let brush off for some reason so yeah so because I've focused so quickly uh so like intently on just the music and letting things come and go I really had to like be convinced that I deserved it um, and allow myself the moment because this what that last year was very, very big. And then they put me on the cover. You know, that's like it's still really hard for me to uh, grasp it. Um, but I just have to keep telling myself I've been doing this for 27 years. I've, I, I do deserve this. But, you know, it, it's still semi-difficult, but I try to, I try, I'm, I'm trying to be kinder to myself to be like, yes, like, you know, yes, bitch, you did this. You could do this. You could celebrate. You're allowed to celebrate. Mm. So I try to sit with it more. I wanted to talk about the work that you do with Last Night at DJ Saved My Life. Could you tell me what, what that is and, and your involvement with it? We started initially in 2019 when the law changed here and um, you didn't need a prescription to get naloxone, which is Narcan. Um, So I was like, this is good. Can you just explain what Narcan is? Because I think maybe people in the UK wouldn't be as familiar, perhaps. So uh, Narcan fights an opioid overdose. Mm -hmm. Opioids are heroin, fentanyl. Um, there's a whole list that we we can Google and look up. And basically, if you overdose on that, it's um it comes in multiple ways, but I give out the ones that are basically you just put it in the nostril and you click it and it sprays the thing into your nostril. And what it ends up doing is it pulls the heroin off of the receptors or whatever opioid fentanyl pulls it off your brain receptor, gets in between it mm. and it will block it, block you from an overdose. Mm. I mean, just fentanyl and drugs has been killing people for so long, and it's gotten really bad as the last few years, especially in the pandemic, people using alone and all of that. So I just wanted to start 
to figure out how to get Narcan to people um, and not and normalize, you know, testing drugs. Um, and so because of the law change, I was like, OK, but it still costs one hundred forty dollars to get Narcan. People aren't going to just fork out one hundred forty dollars, especially not in our community. And there's not a lot of extra money in people's bank accounts. It's just not going to happen. So I partnered with my friend Danielle, who's a nurse. And we partnered with Dr. JJ, who um, heads up this opioid overdose prevention program. And so through him, I can get as much free Narcan as I want. And so what we started doing is doing open calls for anybody that would like to be trained and walk away with free Narcan. And then you'll basically get a little blue card that that says you were trained and you can get free Narcan the rest of your life. I'm like, this is exactly what we need. Mm. So spent did this started in 2019 start uh, beginning of 2020 we all know what happened continued it as much as we could but now in 2023 the laws in the United States have changed so much in a positive way and Biden has put money into harm reduction that it is almost i don't even know what i can do now on a grander scale with like say the website when the everything is, it, it, Narcan is pretty easy to get your hands on now. So I've just basically been handing it out at my lot radio residency once a month. If people want to come get trained, they can come see me. Um, I'm giving it to people I see on the subway that are using. So I'm just, I'm back on the ground with it mm -hmm. um, and open to just kind of ideas of what I can do next. Cause luckily it's a good issue. Um, the fact that like, the government has really stepped up in the United States and it's much more accessible. There's more information. It's easy to get. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we have yeah. we have an amazing organization in the UK called The Loop who test club drugs, basically. It's that thing, isn't it, that there's, you know, so many kind of deaths are preventable just simply by kind of knowing mm -hmm. what's in what's in the drugs, essentially, and avoiding the yeah. ones that have got stuff you don't want to take in them. It's good to do testing with a fentanyl test strip, even though it's not guaranteed mm. because fentanyl can be in different parts of the bag. Mm. Um, so that's the trickiest thing. Um, but yeah, people, I don't think you have as much of an issue in the UK with fentanyl, but I don't think that, I think it might end up becoming that way. Yeah, it's definitely getting into like different, like heroin supplies and stuff, I think over here more frequently. And I've definitely heard of a few instances. You know, you just see those like things on social media. We've seen a dodgy batch or whatever going around and you definitely yeah. see seeing more of that. I would love to hear about your earliest memories of music. Mm -hmm. Did you grow up in a musical household? No, no, not at all. I mean, my parents listened to like Journey and Foreigner and really cheesy, you know, music. My my sisters didn't really introduce me to much music either. I have two older sisters. You know, I do remember hearing Herbie Hancock on the radio when I was very little for the first time. That was like the first electronic song I heard um, and being obsessed with it. And it was when I left Detroit and moved to the suburbs in around the fourth grade that I started to get to physically play instruments. My best friend, you know, her dad was a drum teacher. So I, I probably started playing music in like when I was eight or nine years old. That was really my first kind of foray into music. But then, you know, whether my when my style came in, really the electronic music was industrial, electro, um, and jungle. And obviously house and techno in Detroit. Like it's just once you're once I turned 16, it was raves and, and dance music and DJing jungle music. Can you sort of describe that entry into that world and, and kind of what that meant to you? I fought it because everybody in Detroit was a DJ. Every all of my friends were doing it. And I was just like I had my little guitar and I had, you know, my instruments and I just wanted to I, I just didn't consider it an art form. And obviously I changed my mind, you know, when I tried it for the first time and seeing, seeing that you can transform putting two records together and transforming it into something else is I was just hooked right away. And that was probably when I was 15, mm. 15 or 16 years old, and then bought some turntables, put them in my bedroom, bought them at a secondhand shop, pawn shop, 300 bucks each, tech 1200s, you know, and I had borrowed a big rain rotary mixer with rotary knobs and... <laughs> Off I went. <laughs> oh, amazing. What about the scene, the like social scene? How was how was that as a sort of 16 year old? I mean, it was a major um, 
awakening for me in terms of like safe spaces. And, you know, in my high school, there was not a single out person. Um, there was not a single out person. And I graduated in 1996. It wasn't longer at, long after that that kids were starting to kind of come out and be themselves in high school. But for me, there was none. And we were closeted. So when I discovered this, you know, the rave scene and the community in Detroit, you know, it was big for me. I, I just, you know, it, it helped me feel seen mm. in a time where I was just uh, floating in outer space in high school, not relating to anybody, not understanding my religious right wing family. You know, like it was a lifesaver. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. That freedom to be your, to be yourself and to celebrate actually yeah. who you are. So you kind of continued um, on that path and was there kind of a point where you sort of went professional with your DJing or did that, was that kind of a gradual thing? It's so funny because we just had some deep, some of these conversations when me and Servito and a bunch of uh, the bunker crew were just playing at Smart Bar two weekends ago. And yes, I have always wanted a career in music, but in the nineties, it wasn't, we weren't thinking about that. We were just fucking obsessed mm -hmm. with records and vinyl and, you know, getting jobs at record stores. I'm really, really grateful that there was no social media around then because it was just about obsession and it still is. And it stuck with all of us to this day. And the fact that we have a career in this is like insane to all of us. Like we literally are like, you know, I remember hearing Servito scream to one of the tracks I was playing at like Good Room. And I'm like, you know, what? in that very moment, I was like, I've been hearing that like scream from Servito for like 25 years <laughs> and it's wonderful. And it's like, we're still obsessed. We're still little kids. Mm. Like it doesn't go away. Yeah. You know, I guess that there would have been that sort of thought, well, eventually we'll grow out of this, you know, and then you never do. No way. <laughs> no way. No, it doesn't always happen. It's, it's, all, it's a trap. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So tell me about your journey to recovery, because I know that you, you've you said that you've been on a kind of a healing journey for 10 years. You've been sober for six of those years. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of what was going on sort of leading up to, you know, that kind of realization or that, that pivotal moment where you decided you need to make some changes? You know, it's interesting um, because I remember this moment. It was, um, I was sleeping. Have you ever, um, what they astral projected or whatever they call it, where you like leave your body when you're sleeping and you like realize you're dreaming and you could like do whatever you want? No, I wish. Yeah. Like at that time, I, I don't even think I had heard about it or researched it, but I remember just sleeping and something grabbed me and this felt like a dream. So it could just be a dream, but either way, it just, something grabbed me by my ankles pulled me out of my body and we went flying up, 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 up. I felt my stomach drop and everything. So we go up in the clouds and I hear these, you know, all these like spirits kind of yelling for me. And I'm just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And then boom, I snap back into my body and I wake up. Call it what you will. There's, you know, some call it astral projection. So um, I posted about it and I remember someone saying, yeah, that sounds like you astral projected. And Weirdly enough, that same day, and I don't know how this is connected, but I will connect it because they're just very strange phenomenons. That same day, I remember um, the the wool coming off of my eyes in terms of my own, now I'm going to get deep, um, sexual abuse as a kid. When, when your ego is there to protect you, your ego will say, hey, you're good. It didn't affect you. You're good. Don't give it power. Don't even think about it. You're good. Right? So that's what my ego did for a majority of my life. So I just was like, whatever, I'm not giving it power. It's fine. All of a sudden that day, I realized that was a fucking lie and that my ego was overprotecting me in an unhealthy way and that it affected every ounce, every neuron of my existence, every decision I've made, every relationship I've had, every time I've messed up, all connected. And so it was really, really, really interesting because at that point I knew I had to face that. And what I ended up deciding was that if I want to move forward in my healing, I want to learn how to forgive this person, even though 
at the time, I didn't know who did that to me. I just remember the after. So yeah, that's basically right around the time I decided to start taking ayahuasca, which honestly terrified me Mm. because I'd never taken acid. I've barely taken mushrooms. It just, I just knew that's what I have to do. That's like Mm. this next step. I've I've heard you say that before and I was exactly the same. Like I was terrified of um, psychedelics basically because I think I always felt I'm so close to the edge. I could just never come back. And that was my fear. Like that was the one drug I, I feared and I, you know, yeah. had no self-restraint in any other area. But like, that was the one thing I was like, yeah. I should be careful around that one. Yeah. So, I mean, that was just like, I, I really think it all started with this weird dream or whatever you want to call it. And then all, I was able to like be around the spirits and I came back and I could see truth. Mm. And I started to do the journey and do the work. And I just can't even believe the difference of as a human being of who I am from then to now. But um. Yeah. So I think I, I scheduled my first ceremony. I think I gave myself a little bit of time to mentally prepare. So I went in like three months after that and uh, sat my first ceremony. And I didn't forgive the person. So <laughs> in that ceremony, I didn't forgive them. To go straight from like, I kind of recognize that this has happened to me and affected me on such a profound level and straight to I want to forgive. I mean, that's quite, a, that's a huge leap, isn't it? Like and It is I, a huge leap. It was... um well-intentioned. Yeah. You know, well-intentioned. Um, but obviously, as time went on, you know, I started to understand that forgiveness is a a journey that can take lifetimes. Mm. And I also want to even kind of, I think that the word forgiveness is really charged in terms mm. of um, sexual assault, abuse, rape, things like this. Yeah. You cannot expect forgiveness for something so violent. So for me, my workaround, I don't even know if I want to call it a workaround, but just something to talk about and to think about is for me, what helped me when I just felt I couldn't get there. Empathy is the bridge. Empathy is the road. Empathy can help it. Even if you're not going to forgive that person, the person Mm. that did these terrible things to you, I can almost certainly guarantee that they were also abused and they were continuing the cycle. Mm. So if you think about their, if you can empathize with whatever happened to them as a kid Mm -hmm. and that they didn't get the help they needed and they're continuing the cycle of abuse. Again, Mm. you may not forgive this person, but you can at least empathize. And to me, what that does is it releases this weight Mm. of just anger. If you can just get a little bit of empathy. And Mm. I think, I think that's the most important. I almost would say it's like radical forgiveness or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, but we do need to rethink what forgiveness means because people are just saying, you shouldn't carry that around. You need to forgive them. Like, no, like you really mm. actually need to have a seat. Like, this is a journey. This is difficult. Yeah. You can't just say, I forgive you. Like, no, yeah. it doesn't work like that. And yeah. and also you're putting the onus, another onus on a person that is a survivor. You're putting more weight on them to do more work to forgive you. Like, I'm sorry, that makes my blood boil a little bit. Like, no, actually, we can all take a deep breath and you can take all the time you need and you might not get there. And that's okay. Mm. You can at least maybe empathize. If you can empathize, that's huge. If you can empathize with somebody that really hurt you, that to me is huge. Mm. Absolutely. And I think also whilst you were talking, I was just thinking about that journey to self-forgiveness that is so huge and yeah. and how much work that truly takes you know like yeah I agree with you it's it's so loaded and it's and it's obviously it's an you know it's very much like the individual's choice it should never be put on someone that you should forgive but like mm-hmm. of course like forgiveness is freedom like when we can mm-hmm. let something when go you can get there for sure but yeah it's I mean yeah Huge, a huge, huge task. Yeah. Yeah. And you can forgive somebody without them knowing. Mm. You can forgive them without ever seeing them again. Mm. You don't have to reach out to somebody just because you forgave them. They don't have to be in your life again because you forgave them. Mm. You know, Mm. I just think people need to hear that more, especially survivors. And other people will understand it as well. I don't think it's that difficult a concept. Once maybe, you know, they've heard of it, they will will understand. Mm. Because it makes sense. So how was that first ceremony and what kind of, what did that kind of change or plant in, in you that was new? 
It was honestly, it changed my life. It, it, um, if I never did another ceremony again, my life was absolutely changed. Um, based on basically, you know, I went in there to sit and drink the ayahuasca and learn how to forgive. I sat down and drank the ayahuasca and everyone else around me, granted, this is a, t- a, a packed room full of people, upstate New York. Mm. We had to be inside because of storms, so we couldn't spread out. It was very like, what the fuck am I doing? So I went back up to the shaman and I asked him, I'm like, I'm not really, I'm still here. I'm not really feeling anything or much. And he was like, you know, what I could tell is his accent was so thick, but he, he had said he was an elder and he had said, um, you know, to go back and sit and meditate on your intention. And because what if you get all this information now and you're not ready for it? It's wasted. Like you need to just go back and sit and meditate. So that's basically what I did. And the first thing I saw was like this um, monk sitting cross-legged and, and just praying for me, sitting right in front of me, praying just for me. It was really interesting, very intricate. It was almost like he was drawn with an electric pen. It was like an electric drawing of this monk praying for me. It was really, it was, all, it was calming. I think I needed to see that. Um, and then at that point, that's when... Uh, my heart showed up and it was right here. Right. Mm. So I see my heart and I grab it and I just like basically toss, I throw it back in my chest and I just start crying and I just am bawling my eyes out because I'm, I'm basically saying out loud, fuck you, fuck you. This was never yours. This is mine. Fuck you. Um, so clearly in that moment, I didn't forgive this person. I got what I needed. I got my heart back. Another person in their t- journey starts laughing and they're and then I start laughing and crying because then I'm like, I'm whole. I'm whole for the first time. Like it's since I was four. And I'm just like bawling my eyes out. Um and it's so funny because like six months later it was my birthday and I remember being in Berlin. And once you drink ayahuasca, it's it's believed that's always in you and it's always going to release answers when you need them. It's gonna give you gifts and things like that. Um and I realized, I was like, holy shit, I have like 10, te- 10 hearts tattooed on my body. Like, I have an anatomical heart here. I have like a heart here. I have a heart here on my head. I have a heart on my leg. I have so many hearts all over my body. And I was like subconsciously looking for my heart forever. And I was getting, t- getting them tattooed on me. And so I'm just like, wow, like the, the subconscious is beautiful. I mean, it was just like, it was such a beautiful realization. Yeah. And I just was so grateful. And yeah, it was beautiful. Oh, that's so powerful. And then what happened after that? I did another ceremony about a month later. So the, uh, in that first ceremony, honestly, um, it was more of rose tinted glasses getting thrown in a fire. It was literally like I saw truth before, but now it's like, girl, you're really going to see truth. You're going to see everything that you need to work on and it's going to, it's going to hurt, but you cannot heal yourself unless you can see what's really going on. So when I finished that ceremony, people are always like, you're just feel love. You feel good. You want to be around people. And I, when I finished that ceremony, I was like, get me the fuck out of here. I need to go back to Brooklyn. Let's go. I'm ready to go home. Like it was discomfort. I was just like, oh, so I spent that month recalibrating to this truth. And then I was like, okay, I think I need to do another ceremony to kind of complete this cycle. There's more information I need. And and I did do the second ceremony at the same place and we got to sit outside that time. Um, I don't remember much profound. I, I just felt a closure afterwards. Like I understood the truth and why I needed to do what I needed to do. Just as you were talking there, you were talking about the the cycle and it reminded me of something I heard you speaking about with um, Louisa and Rose actually on Sober Sex about something else you've done, which is EDMR, trauma therapy. Yeah, EMDR. Yep. And you were talking about this cycle of experience in relation to trauma and EMDR. And mm-hmm. I thought that was really fascinating the way you spoke about it. So I'm actually about to start doing EMDR again. Um I think it's such a powerful tool. Basically, when a trauma happens to us, whenever, whatever age we are, um, something terrible happens, we only have access to our reptilian brain, right? So we only have access to fight, flight, and freeze. So 
what ends up happening is that trauma, because we've only used this reptilian brain, stays there and causes PTSD in us because it doesn't make the, it doesn't finish the cycle. It doesn't go through our body. It just gets stuck. Right. So when we do EMDR, what we're doing is they're using some sort of method back and forth between left and right, whether you're holding these things that vibrate or if you're doing it on online, you can do this tapping back and forth. And what this does is it actually um, awake it, it allows you to use the both left and right side of your brain to reprocess this trauma. So you're going through this with somebody who's uh, a practitioner who's who can watch even the smallest changes in your face to to kind of distinguish where we need to go. So basically you're taking your body through this trauma again, but with the brain that we use now, the prefrontal cortex. So we're processing it from our current brain. So that means we can start to complete this cycle of trauma, right? And it just, it releases from your body. Mm. It's almost, and sometimes you shake. It's like, it's very intense and beautiful. Um, I, I highly recommend it. There was something you said about, you know, when you see an animal shaking kind of after, after they've been attacked and like that, that is, yep. um, that's kind of, that's the completion of the cycle. It's really interesting because when, when we go through a trauma and an, say an ambulance comes and they want to, if you're say like hit by a car walking across the street and they come and you are just in shock, right? You're in shock. You don't feel the pain yet. The ambulance comes, they're treating you. They're going to want to give you medicine. They're going to maybe even want to knock you out, right? So you aren't actually completing the cycle, Mm. but the shaking is the completion Mm. and animals do this. They do this naturally. If they're hunted, they're in danger, they might, they might freeze. Same thing. So once the danger is gone, they are still frozen. But when at, at some point they end up shaking and then they break it and then they, bro- they break it and they can just run it off as if nothing happened because they completed that cycle and don't have PTSD. Mm. But humans, we carry it around in us. Mm. Fight, flight, freeze gets stuck here and we need to process it here. Mm. And it helps us through and finish the cycle. And yeah, you're shaking. Mm. You're often shaking. It's intense, but it's beautiful. So kind of this journey sort of started for you with this visitation through a dream and then, you know, mm-hmm. feeling this calling for ayahuasca. This has then led you to kind of all these other things like EMDR, meditation, mm-hmm. you mentioned. And so, yeah, you said that meditation is the thing that you're really kind of working with now. Can you tell me like a little bit about your practice and how it's developed and what it gives you, I guess? Yeah. I mean, honestly, in the beginning, I tried to join the TM Center because a lot of my, my uh, rich musician friends were going there. And I was like, maybe I should try and go and see if they'll like accept a little less money and whatever. So I walk into one totally broken. Like I was trying to offer them like $300 and they were like, no, we need $1,000 from you to learn this meditation that's actually free and based on ancient Vedic meditation, all this stuff. So I left feeling really pissed. I'm like, I actually went in there for help. And they didn't, they didn't want to provide that. And so that sent me on my own journey and um, kind of landed me on kundalini, chakra-based cleansing, grounding type um, meditations. And what I learned just from sitting, I was shocked by this because I had crippling anxiety my whole life. And so what I ended up, what I landed on was doing grounding meditations where you basically are just sitting uh, with your legs crossed. And you're just imagining a root growing out of your bottom of your spine. And you're just kind of trying to visualize it going down deep into the the center of the earth. And that's all I was doing for, you know, the first month. And I would just, for like five minutes, set an alarm. Because you you can set an alarm. You can do these things. You don't have to be a two-hour meditator. I'm not a two-hour meditator. I'm a five to 15-minute meditator in the Western culture. I'm busy. I'm doing things, but I want to meditate. I'm that, so, that makes me happy to hear that. <laughs> so am I. Yeah, don't feel pressure. <laughs> yeah. When I hear people talk about doing two-hour meditations, I'm like, in what world could I do a two-hour meditation? No. Maybe on holiday. It's just not for everybody. <laughs> Has it had a profound effect on your anxiety? Yeah, I did that for a month. I did the grounding meditation for a month and I was like, I just couldn't believe it. I thought it was going to go away at any moment. I was like, I'm going to have anxiety again. I'm going to feel insane again. I'm going to so my anxiety when I have panic attacks is I feel like I need to throw up. I need to go home. It's just I'm exposed. It's very, very scary. And I know a lot of people can relate to that. Mm. Um, and it all 
disappeared. Mm. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, is this how people are supposed to feel their whole life? I had, I'm, I mean, I just couldn't believe it. And I know it was the trauma of what happened to me when I was little that shoots you out of your body and you're not embodied anymore because it's a survival technique. And so I just, I, I just couldn't believe it. And now, even to this day, it's like, I can feel the anxiety creeping in. And if it's going to be something that's going to be an issue, I will disappear to a bathroom. I will sit down. I will do a grounding meditation. I will be okay. So, but I, I think that there's a thousand ways to the same destination. So I don't want to judge people for doing other things. Mm. It's just what works for me. And something I've also heard you speaking about, which I is just being like very much on my mind recently, is like this idea of of shadow work. You know, that kind of idea of like, yeah, get to know yourself. It sounds lovely. <laughs> but actually the the reality getting to truly to know yourself means also getting to know the dark side of you. So I'd love to hear about your experience. I think my my experience with it, it was, um, again, we touched on it a little bit of for, uh, uh, forgiveness of ourselves, kindness to ourselves. Mm. It's really hard to, it was really hard for me to apply that to myself in moments where I had to shine the light in that, in those dark spaces. You just have to Try to not judge yourself. Try to be kinder to yourself. Just just think about how you would treat somebody else and do that for yourself because shadow work is really hard to to not judge yourself, especially for those doing shadow work of, that have had, uh, say, violent pasts and things like this. It's it's hard for people to not judge themselves. But if you're doing the work, just it's it's really important to try to be tender. And I'm doing a lot of, maybe you can relate, a lot of inner child work. Mm. And I think if you struggle with being kind to yourself and the things you've done as an adult, maybe just start with trying to get to that inner child. And mm-hmm. and and I, I don't know. Yeah, it's been basically the most important thing as of recently was getting to this inner child. It's so interesting that you talk about inner child work. I was with a good friend yesterday who just said who's you know on a similar journey to both of us, and she. Um, said, you know, the inner child work is literally the most powerful stuff that she's done. Um, and are you kind of in the middle of that at the moment? I mean, it's always so interesting doing. <sighs> I will do these podcasts forever, right? The rest of my life, I will share these stories. But what people might not even think about is that th- we're still on this journey the work is still happening Mm. Um, I'm in the midst of a big one Mm. with the inner child work and um, okay I'm all right it's really an interesting thing because you know just last week I went through a meditation a group meditation and a healing where we went and did some inner child work and they you know asked me to visualize and I got to the 12-year-old self that was always playing basketball outside when we lived in the suburbs. And, you know, I got to that. And then I was like, no, I need to get to the four-year-old self, the one that's in Detroit. And it was a struggle. I finally got to her and, you know, she didn't trust anybody. She didn't want me around. She didn't want anybody. It took a lot of work to get close enough to the four-year-old me and just, you know, hold her hand and just pick her up and just say, like, I'm here now. I've got you. You know, you're safe. We are 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 loved. Um, and that's like the other day when I was in the studio and I cried all day. I tell you, I wrote this song for my inner child that day. And music just, I've just like overcome with gratitude because of how beautiful music can do. Like people say, oh, don't cry. You know, like, no, like this is beautiful. This is old, old grief, old pain that is there that needs to come out. It's still in my body and it needs to come out. And this medium is helping it all come out. And it's just like, it's a very powerful moment in my life right now. Very difficult, but yeah. But it's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I just think, you know, I just think my little 
I don't know if I should even say this. You can always cut it out. Like my little boy is four. uh, Yeah, my little boy is three. And I just think so young, like, you know, like just breaks my heart. Same. You know, same. I've asked my sister. Mm. My my mom, I remember asking her a couple of years ago. I was like, did you ever. Do you remember when I changed? Do you remember when I was four and I changed and I couldn't. I was the, I was one of those kids that was always running around naked and just doing everything carefree. And then afterwards, I wasn't. I was always, I wouldn't get in the car with anybody but my mom. I wouldn't bathe with anybody but my mom. If I did, I would scream, you know, like things like this. Um, and I asked my mom, I was like, do you not remember? Do you remember? And she was like, no, honey, I don't. I don't remember this change. No. And I asked my sister, Julie, who's got two kids. And I'm like, you would notice it if my niece wasn't running around booty butt naked, joyful and doing everything a kid should be doing, mm. you would notice, right? And she was like, I would notice. Yeah. Again, yeah. I have to return to empathy with my mom not seeing that. I don't understand mm. it, but I think she, we won't get into, but I'm focused on her trauma with that, with whatever she went through and not yeah. being able to focus on her child. But yeah. yeah. Sounds like that's really, really deep work. And I think that that's also a really vital message because I think, you know, you can have a few years in recovery or you can be on this path for a while and you can, and especially if you're open about that, you know, there is that kind of idea that like, oh, you're fine now. Like, oh, you've, you're fixed. You're like, you've completed it. And it's, it's just, that's <laughs> literally, that is kind of, I turned up to this interview kind of like hoping that we could talk about a little bit about that because I've literally, you know, just had such a rough weekend emotionally where I've been like, oh, not all this again, you know, and it's like mm-hmm. the work doesn't stop, mm-hmm. you know, it's like no. you sort of think, hey, I like have had these moments of recovery where I'm like, yeah, that's it. Well, maybe I'm <laughs> maybe I'm all right now. Maybe I'm going to be happy mm-hmm. from here on in. And then you just get flawed <laughs> and you're like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's so it's so interesting that you say that because i mean yeah healing is a linear Mm. we we like are experiencing that real time Mm -hmm. um but i also feel um i went backwards the last two months and i felt like i went to pre my mind mental state went to before i started doing any of the work and i was before i even knew anything was wrong Mm. um i went back to this mental state of who i was then and I was like, oh, my God, how is this happening again? Mm. But what it was, was I had to just break out the tools that I've learned mm. to get on the other side of it. Mm. And anything that was left behind is my homework for 2023. Mm. Right. And so I, I'm learning how to reparent myself this year in certain things. Mm. Um, but a lot of it, I, I already had the tools to kind of get on the other side. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it's really interesting how it's not linear. And I was went back to this moment in time as I am now to take a look at it. And now I see what's left over mm. and I know what I need to work on. Mm. But it's really, you, you don't get to stop even if you want to. No, no. Once you decide, it's going. Yeah, it's going. You're in. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, it's it's just I'm constantly kind of caught into that trap of like thinking, well, but I know this stuff. And it's like, it's not about knowing it intellectually. It's about practicing it embodying it like and you're going to go deeper you're going to go deeper like you know yep it's wild you've completed this level but there's another level <laughs> ready and it's and it's even crazier yeah. and it's going to take the next 10 years of your life <laughs> Let's talk about um, creativity, your kind of relationship with creativity, with your art, with your music, and how how has that uh, changed throughout your your recovery, your healing journey? Um, the interesting thing is, I think it's it stayed similar, but I've just become more aware of what it does. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, what that means is I've always channeled. Um, trauma and anger through music. I just didn't know it. So I've had this kind of healthy outlet for a very long time. And now I know I have this healthy outlet so I can continue to expand on it um, to the point where I'm doing some some meditation, healing music with a friend of mine. Um, so we can kind of specialize in if you need to be, if you're feeling ungrounded, if you're feeling anxiety, sit down, 
put your headphones on, listen to this and focus on it and it will ground you, that kind of stuff. Mm. But yeah, I mean, just in general, it's, it's everything. It's how I think it's kept me because even when I was an alcoholic, if things were bad, I never got like violent or angry or, you know, if I, I always hurt myself when I was mm. angry, I didn't ever like hurt other people. But I think a lot of it was mm. mostly based on the fact that I was channeling it unintentionally putting anger into the music. And there's so mm. I mean, I feel really fortunate for that. So I'm just going to keep doing the mm. same thing. You seem like you've got kind of quite soft energy about you. Um, I don't know if that that's just my impression, but it just reminds me like often when you meet kind of the most like kind of extreme looking kind of metalers and stuff like they're often like super soft like very kind of gentle gentle people and it's like that's where the anger exactly. comes exactly I mean I was always shocked like I, I would go see like an energy healer and she'd be like there's a lot of anger in there a lot of anger and I'm like really like I don't feel angry and I don't it doesn't come out in weird ways but now I get it and like now I understand mm. especially now that new information and things are coming forward about my childhood like I'm fully dealing with anger and rage again and trying to release that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so did you fear at all that, you know, like was was your relationship with like drugs and alcohol, was that at all kind of tied to your creativity? Did you ever kind of have any sort of reservation that, you know, that the two might kind of, that like leaving that behind might kind of impact your ability to create? Luckily, uh, the creation of music for me has always been more sacred and I've never, ever counted on drugs or alcohol to create music. I have counted on alcohol to like DJ and perform um, and be more embodied and be less scared. Um, so that was definitely difficult to adjust to. But luckily with music, I've always wanted to be 100% myself and authentic mm. with that. Mm. Do you remember your first sober gig? It's weird because I, I actually, it was when I was touring with Fisher Spooner in like 2008 and I was their tour DJ and it would be like me and Casey doing like Fisher Spooner DJ sets. And um, it was when I stopped, it was when my hangovers went from functioning to non-functioning and I would be nauseous and I can't travel nauseous. So that was literally like when I had to make a decision that I can't DJ drunk anymore to do that. And it was really scary. So I learned how to do it back with Fisher Spooner. <laughs> and so now it's just, it's, you know, still, it's still sometimes difficult when I start to get out of my head and into my body. I'm still like, I'm a Libra, I'm an air sign, I'm all in here, you know. Um, mm. But, um, but eventually I get there. I get in the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Do you, do you feel nervous before performing, even though you've been kind of doing it for 27 years? DJing, not so much. But when I perform live, mm. I am. Live is like mm. I can't eat three hours before the show. I have to like have my silence. Like that's playing live is like being naked to me. So it's a lot more. DJing is icing on the cake. I love it. Sure, it's difficult sometimes. And sometimes not all gigs are, I don't play great at all gigs, you know. Like sometimes I play bad. And that's the stress. And um. But yeah, just I just don't have that option anymore that if things are not going well to like turn to alcohol to make it better. You just have to kind of deal with it. Not all gigs are going to be great. I'm not going to perform my best at every show. That's basically it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. You kind of like I was just thinking when you were talking, I think a lot of people think like the hardest thing about being sober is the temptation that you might feel like in the club or at a party or on New Year's Eve or, you know, at a wedding, whatever, whatever it is, you know, that kind of social situation where everyone is is drinking. Yeah. Um, but I think obviously this interview has kind of said it's like, like shown is is that's I mean, that's what I was I always say, like, no, it's not like it's not the staying sober actually that's hard. It's life that's hard. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. It's having to Yeah. Yeah. It's just accepting that like we don't, you eventually have to deal with it. So you might as well just deal with it instead of numbing yourself for as long as you can until you can't numb yourself anymore. And then you deal with it. Just deal with it. Which mm -hmm. is hard. It's, it's like hard. It's like saying, just do it. Like, no, it's yeah. actually pretty hard. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I really admire like your um how open you are about your recovery um and you know your willingness to share that experience um and has it have you always been open um or was there like a moment where you decided like I'm going to I'm going to let people know what I'm going through or what I've been through? I don't think I was always open. I thought I think I was mostly guarded and always kind of pretending everything was okay. Um, all the way through to my 30s. But I think it was a natural progression for me to share my journey. It just felt important that other people could benefit through just being honest. Um, and And I remember the first interview I gave that I was honest about it, that I remember feeling very exposed and scared, but just knew it was the right thing to do. And I haven't stopped since, and I am so grateful because now it just seems, uh, you know, if I'm just helping a few people here and there, and they might share their story, and we might just, you know, we might just save the planet <laughs> eventually. Thank you so much to Lauren for sharing so deeply with me. That was so special. That was such, I felt such a privilege. Um speaking to Lauren I think we're both feeling quite tender um and yeah but I found this conversation so very very healing and I hope that you found it healing to hear this and to hear Lauren's incredible story and mission and her take on things um and yeah please do let me know what you thought of the conversation if it's moved you if it's touched you I'm sure I mean it's kind of impossible to listen to to that without being moved right uh so if you want to check out uh, any of lauren's uh, releases or her online profiles i will be putting some links in the description and yeah i just want to say thank you so much for joining me today and thank you so much to lauren and yeah i just want to say a big thank you to george who helps me with the production he does uh, most of the editing and sorts out all our social assets and stuff like that so george you're a legend as well thank you and uh, thank you to Double O who composed the original music. And thank you to you who's been listening and to you all who've supported. It really does mean so much. Uh, it's going to be an exciting year for Back to Life. And I'm glad that you're all with me for the ride. Have a great couple of weeks and we'll be back with another episode soon. Bye.